Growing up on a farm in Belgium, Nina Derricks remembers that lunch was the main meal of the day. Often, they had soup. Often pigeon soup, because Belgians particularly like pigeon racing, and all the losers went into the soup. Coming up, sample the taste treats and comfort foods of Belgium. Visit a farmer's market in southern France, and the first thing you'll notice is all the color. The bright reds of the cherries or the strawberries, the deep purples of the local eggplants, and the bursts of yellow from the sunflowers coming from the local fields. Marjorie R. Williams takes us to her favorite markets in Provence. And this time of year, if you book the all-night ghost hunting tour at a former asylum in West Virginia, be warned, it could get a little weird and you are locked in there, and it's pitch dark. There's no electricity. There's quiet, and then there's unexplained noises. It's an experience that you'll remember, I promise you, Rick. Terrence Zepke takes us to some of America's most haunted places just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. In France, a town's badge of honor is its open-air farmer's market. Stay with us as we explore some of the best in Provence on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And guides from Belgium will tell us about the comfort foods of their youth. We'll see just how tasty the real home of French fries can get in just a bit. In time for Halloween, Tarrant Zepke explores 15 of the creepiest places in our own country in a ghost hunter's guide to the most haunted places in America. She joins us now from the studios of North Carolina Public Radio in Durham. Hi, Terrence. Thanks for having me, Rick. So when I think of ghosts, you know, I think of kind of like Casper, right? Are there different kinds of ghosts, angels, you know, uh, evil ghosts, friendly ghosts? Well, some of these places are haunted by some rather uh, malevolent entities, if you will. And it really depends on their history. That's why you really have to go in and do your research and understand the backstory. For instance, in the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which I discuss in the book, these people were mental patients. This was an institution, and this was in place before we knew a lot about mental health and before we had a lot of regulations. So these people were subjected to experimental procedures. Rick, we're talking like lobotomies, (laughs) using primitive tools, electroshock, hydrotherapy. So these are sort of tortured souls, so they don't necessarily, you know, feel like being friendly. (laughs) And and, and by the way, this is one of the fascinating chapters in your book, The the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum from the town of Weston in West Virginia. Tell us a story about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Okay, well, first I have to set the scene for you. This is on a huge piece of property in a tiny town in a remote area of West Virginia. So first thing when you get there, you know, you feel like you've left civilization behind. And from the photos, it just looks creepy. It is an absolutely fabulous building. It's a 250,000-square-foot facility, and it's the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America. And it's actually second largest in the world after the Kremlin. So it's very imposing, very impressive when you pull up to it. And, of course, it had to be self-sufficient. It had to maintain itself and everything. So back in the day, it was 666 acres. It had a farm, had a cemetery. It had facilities there where the doctors and nurses lived. They couldn't commute. This wasn't near anything. So everybody was there, and everything was taken care of there. And, of course, they did surgery and procedures there. And uh, it was actually a military post during the Civil War. It was commandeered by the Union. And so one of the areas that's most haunted is supposedly by some of the Civil War soldiers. And then, of course, some of the patients, and some of them might be lingering. And then some of the patients actually killed other patients. 
okay, I'm all, I'm all alone in the halls of this lunatic asylum. What would I feel? What's going on? I can tell you what I felt. I've never felt anywhere else I've ever investigated. It's a four-story building, and I went first during the day, and you can do a daytime tour. A historical tour will take you through the whole place. So, of course, that's what we did so that we could get a good idea of everything before we're stumbling around in the dark later that evening. And I tell you, even during broad daylight, that place, you just feel things all around you. There's just an unseen presence. I understand from your book you can actually spend the night. Mm -hmm. I can picture a single bed in a cell. I'm laying there. What am I going to feel? It's dark. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm getting scared just dreaming about this thing. It's really, you know, your mind plays games on you, too, when you go and do these investigations. And, And then, of course, it is haunted, and you are locked in there, and it's pitch dark. There's no electricity. You've got flashlights only. And there's cold spots in there, you know, there's there's quiet, and then there's unexplained noises. But because this place is so remote, there's no lights from, from street lights. There's no honking of car horns. There's no neon signs from McDonald's. I mean, you're out there just on your own, hmm. and it's an experience that you'll remember, I promise you, Rick. <laughs> I'm, Rick I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and uh, we're getting spooked with a uh, discussion with Terrence Zepke, and her book's called A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. Terrence, let's go across the United States all the way to Portland, Oregon, and you write about a, a fascinating thing about Shanghai tunnels. Tell us about what happened there. Well, Rick, you had to be really careful what tavern you staggered into um, in that day because there were strategically placed trap doors in certain establishments. And what they would do is they pick certain people, you know, that were ripe for the plucking there, and they would lure them over to these trap doors where someone was waiting below. And this is in the middle of a crowded tavern, you know, and they just took you over and they just, you know, dropped the trap door and you were gone into these tunnels. And it was either because you were drunk or you had been drugged. But either way, that's how they did it. And they kept you there until they took you from the tunnels down to the waiting ships. And part of the reason this was such a a prevalent thing was this was during the gold rush era. And all the men had gone out west to strike their fortune, and they didn't have enough men for the ships. So they shanghaied them. Get them drunk and sign them up onto a ship, and uh, they'd wake up at sea, and uh, they'd be heading off to Shanghai as as a hand on the ship. Right, absolutely. And this is a historic uh, thing? This actually happened? Oh, yeah. You can actually tour that in Portland, the Shanghai Tunnels? Yeah, you can go in. There's a group that will take you in, you know, under the restaurant, and they'll take you into the tunnel, and they'll tell you the history. Like, one of the things was apparently they took their shoes from them when they they Shanghai them, and they spread broken glass, and it still can be seen in the tunnels today. And that was so they couldn't, if they came to, they couldn't escape. You also write about Tombstone, Arizona, which any any kid that enjoyed the old westerns remembers was the site of the shootout at the O.K. Corral with uh, Wyatt Earp and so on. And lots went on in Tombstone. How did that town become so haunted? And, and, and tell us a little bit about the background of Tombstone. Well, you know, it was considered to be one of the wildest, wickedest places in America at that time because this is where all the men came out, you know, to seek their fortune and all. And there wasn't any law, so there was cowboys, you know, and they they just ran wild. And they ended up, you know, a lot of them in places like Tombstone. And the saloons also had brothels and gambling and everything. And one of them is there in Tombstone. It's called the Birdcage Theater. And you can still go in it today. And you should if you go to Tombstone. No trip is complete without it because there are 140 bullet holes in the walls of this saloon. There was at least 26 documented deaths that occurred here. There was a poker game that went on down below 24-7 from the time the the place opened until it closed. It was a $1,000 buy-in, and the game never stopped. There is one ghost, a prostitute one night named Gold Dollar. 
uh, have a regular customer, and she came in and saw another prostitute flirting with him, and she got so mad she stabbed and killed this other prostitute named Marguerite. So supposedly the spirit of Marguerite haunts the uh, Birdcage Theater to this day. The biggest thing probably that they say happens is, you know, at night there's no activity there. It's closed. Mm. Mm. And you can still hear, though, people swear that they've come by there and they thought something was, they were having a special event or something because there is the sounds of a saloon in progress. You know, drinks, uh, uh, glasses <laughs> clinking, you know, laughter, you know, loud voices and all that. And yet there's nothing inside when someone goes in to investigate. So, How do you research this? Do you actually go there and test for paranormal sort of uh, sensations? Oh, yeah. I I do my homework first to make sure that the legitimate stories, because a lot of stuff gets, you know, urban legend out there and a lot of things. The one thing I I was sure about in this book is that there's been recent activity because some of these, you know, places that they talk about being haunted, nobody can tell you the last time there was activity. Oh, yeah. Um, You don't want to go to a dormant haunted place. You want a place that's got some haunted action right now. Okay, well, let's talk about the Queen Mary, because I think the Queen Mary is a fascinating ship. It has a great history from shipping troops back and forth in World War II. It did, what, a thousand voyages since her first maiden voyage in 1936 across the Atlantic. And now it is permanently moored in Long Beach in California. And uh, you went there and you found it to be quite haunted. And you report on that in your book. Yeah, it was commandeered during the war by the Navy, so there's reports that there are sailors that have been seen um, in certain areas of the ship, and also some passengers that have died there over the years also haunt the place. Now, this is a big ship, isn't it? I understand it's bigger than the Titanic. It's a very big ship, yes, and they've had psychics come in to do investigations as well as paranormal groups, of course, and there's a dispute just how many ghosts are on board. One psychic puts it as low as 150, and another psychic puts it as high as 600 ghosts aboard this ship. So whatever the actual count is, needless to say, it's pretty haunted. (laughs) Maybe this is where ghosts go on a cruise for vacation. (laughs) The thing I like about the Queen Mary is there's so many different ways that you can explore this as, as a tourist. You can just choose to go on board and take a tour. You can go on board and actually eat in one of the restaurants, uh, do some shopping, or you can stay. It's a hotel now, so you can actually spend the night if you dare. So many of these places you can actually sleep in. As a, as a traveler, as a tourist, would you pay more or would you pay less to, to sleep in a place that was haunted? Oh, absolutely pay more. You'd it's pay really more. interesting. When I started <laughs> when I started writing ghost books several years ago, places were really reluctant to tell you because they thought it was bad for business. So people were like, please don't put this in the book or you're not allowed to talk to our employees or we don't we don't want people to know this. Now everybody wants to, you know, they say, Oh, hey, come here, check us out, you know, write us up, you know, tell about our ghost. And so it's kind of funny how it's changed as people have gotten less put off by a place being haunted and actually hoping to have uh, an experience during the night. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terence Zepke, and her book is A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. Let's close out this little discussion with your recommendation for mm, the creepiest place in the United States for Halloween. Oh, the creepiest place. Well, for adults, I would recommend Bobby Mackey's Music World in Kentucky, Wilder, Kentucky. It is a fabulous experience because of its gruesome history. It's all honky-tonk. What's so scary or haunted about it? What's so good about it? Well, there was a woman, a young woman that was beheaded here. 
Um, it was mob-owned for a while, and they said that they did a lot of their hits here, and they moved the bodies so it wouldn't be connected with the place, but they did do a lot of their hmm. you know, hits here. And there was a cult that actually came here and used the facility to do satanic rituals. So it's got a really dark history there, and so there's several ghosts in there that are apparently not happy ghosts. Hey, Terrence, if you read your book, A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America, are you more or less likely to have a paranormal experience? I don't know if reading the book would make you more inclined to it. It might open you up to make you more aware because a lot of people have the erroneous impression that a paranormal experience is that you're just going to see a ghost pop up in front of you. And that's pretty much the least common. What's going to happen is you might notice a cold spot, a cold sensation, a breath on the back of your neck, uh, something tugging on your shirt, or uh, just a creepy feeling, all kinds of things like that that it might make you more aware that these are tied into a paranormal experience rather than just having Casper jump out at you. <laughs> now, as one of the most schooled experts on paranormal experiences in the United States, how are you going to celebrate Halloween this year? I actually am leaving tomorrow to go to Colorado to check out the Stanley Hotel. That's where The Shining was filmed with Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. So that's sort of my Halloween thing this year. Terrence Zepke, author of A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. Thank you for making my Halloween a little creepier. Boo. We have a link to Terrence's website and blog with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Next, we brighten things up in the colorful street markets of Provence. We're at 877-333-RICK, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Even if you're not much of a shopper, I bet you'll become one when you visit the local farmers and artisan markets in the scenic towns and villages of the sunny south of France. The markets are the heart of their communities, where local vendors and shoppers have been gathering once or twice a week for centuries. In her guide, Markets of Provence, Marjorie Williams recommends her favorites with tips for making it a day you'll long remember. Marjorie, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you, Rick. It's my pleasure. Now, you're well-experienced in traveling and writing throughout France, but this one really has a special passion. It is Provence. Why are Provence markets distinct from, say, what you'd find in Burgundy or Normandy or the Dordogne? Well, part of what makes the Provence market so distinct, the landscape and the beauty of it, and also what it produces. It's one of the most productive areas in France, and so there's a tremendous amount of local produce that's grown there, and of course some of the best Rhone wines and other wines are from that area, so that the flavors and the landscape of Provence make making the the rounds to the different markets a, a real joy. You know, that is a very good point. It's the fertility and the variety and the voluptuousness of the local production that really does shape the market, doesn't it? That's exactly right. When you walk through a market in Provence, just to get us in the mood, what grabs your uh, your attention as a person who loves to eat in France? Well, the very first impression that I have is of just this sensory explosion. To enter a market in Provence, let me just try to paint the picture for you. First, you might see the bright reds of the cherries or the strawberries and the deep purples of the local eggplants and the bursts of yellow from the sunflowers coming from the local fields. So the tremendous variety of, of colors. And then the smells that hit the nose. It might be 
the sweet smells of the soaps, the lavender soaps and the vanilla soaps, or the lavender itself. Of course, lavender is one of the most popular, most well-known products of Provence, and lavender items are throughout the markets. And then there's the smells, for example, of the roasted chicken or the flavor of even better of mm. it, and the olives and the cheeses, and all of this with the surround of the sound of people talking, maybe the sound of church bells coming down or the cicadas making their, their noises in the heat of the day. Mm. And so it's really, it's a feast for the senses. And the community is out too, so you get a feeling like it's just a festival of togetherness. These markets are very much part of the rhythms of the villages. Mm-hmm. They're very, very important to the social life, and you can see that in the relationships among the customers who are greeting their friends and their neighbors, or between the customers and the sellers. They're very well known to each other. They see each other weekly. And even among the vendors themselves, I, I noticed that this last trip, how much the vendors go to the markets, not only to sell and to, to earn a living, but to see their friends who are the other vendors. Mm. You know, just having you explain that, just it takes me back. I, I remember the, the little bundles of all the ingredients for ratatouille together in the market. Oh, well, yes, you can find in quick succession, whether it's the eggplant, the olive oil, which we would use for the ratatouille, that's one of my favorite items to buy when I'm in Provence at the uh-huh. markets. And then you know, all of the different flavors, the herbs and the spices that yeah. go in it as well. You see big burlap sacks filled with uh-huh. the different herbs of all different colors. Now, people are sort of hell-bent on seeing lavender, but I get a sense yeah. that when you're there in the wrong season, they will have the required little bits of dried lavender just so you have that splash of color that you're hoping for. But uh, the season matters too, doesn't it? I mean, if you go at a different time, you'll have much more uh, color or lavender. Lavender, if you want to see lavender, the best time to go is in the height of the summer. It, conveniently, it peaks at the height of the tourist season, and depending on the elevation, either late June through July or into mid-August. But, you know, lavender is so well known as a product of Provence, but when you're there, it's a chance to discover so many other local products, and they are very seasonal. What's being offered in the markets in the summer, very different from what you'll find in the winter, but these Provencal markets tend to be year-round. They'll shrink considerably in the wintertime, mm-hmm. but they're open all year-round. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Marjorie R. Williams is our guide to the characteristic markets of small-town France right now in the south of France, Provence. She's written a guide to the markets of Provence. She's also written a guide to the markets of Paris. Her website is marjorierwilliams.com. Marjorie, in your book, you talk about the different kinds of markets. We've got traditional markets, farmers' markets, where farmers sell directly, flea and antique markets. Describe a little bit about the the variety that you might encounter. Yes, there are many different types of markets in Provence. The most common type is what I call the traditional Provencal market. These are the outdoor markets. Their vendors set up their goods under the shade of trees or under umbrellas, and they take on the contours of the village or the town where they are. So They might flow along very narrow and twisted medieval streets, and then when they get to an open square, the markets spread out in those squares, and then out the other end, they'll continue along these narrow streets again, and they just weave up and down the villages. And they're they're beautiful. It's often against this backdrop of 
perhaps these like gracious decorative buildings. I'm thinking in Aix en Provence, mm-hmm. for example, hmm. some beautiful buildings in the backdrop. I was thinking the same thing. X, that beautiful square with the market and the what yes. are those? The plane trees that provide the shade. Yes. And, and there's a yeah. guy that looks just like uh, Jerry Garcia selling cheese there. I think I've seen. Do you remember him, that as guy? A matter of fact, Jerry Garcia, the cheesemonger. I mean, there's so many characters, <laughs> and if you if you are a local, I'm sure you get to know the different personalities in the market. And as a traveler, that's our challenge: is to see the fabric of the community showing itself in the markets. One tip that I offer to people is look for lines when you're at a market. And that that might go against our our normal habits where we're looking for the shortest line, the least weight. But in Provence, a line usually indicates real quality goods and Mm -hmm. as the locals recognize it. And so some of the best ways to see some of the characters are, are to actually go to the market stands where the lines are the longest. Yeah, and uh, we have to remember this is not just sightseeing for most people in the markets. They have small refrigerators. They expect to go out and get fresh food and connect with their farmer friends and their merchants and uh, stock the shelves for the coming week. These markets are, do I understand, they're they're sort of one day a week and, and the same merchants will go from town to town and they'll work five or six days out of the week in five or six different towns? Yes, that's right. If you go to different markets within the same close vicinity of each other, you're very likely to see some of the similar vendors showing up. But if you travel a little farther distance, of course, Provence changes one region to another. And the landscape and the flavors and the local specialties and also in terms of the market vendors. So it's I encourage people to explore different parts of Provence when they're there to see a real variety. You organize your book in terms of days, markets on Mondays, markets on Tuesdays, and so on. Are some days better than others? And are there some markets that are worth actually building your schedule around? Or should you just, if it's Thursday, go to whatever's closest nearby? I think every day offers excellent opportunities for markets in Provence. Unlike in Paris, for example, where Monday is is sort of dead as a market day. But in Provence, every day of the week has some very vital markets going on. And I think it depends on one's interest. But if if one's interested, for example, in flea and antique items, Mm -hmm. then it's worth building your itinerary around being in the the town of Lille-sur-la-Sourgue on Sunday. And Sunday morning, there's a, a food market there. And then there are the brocante dealers, which are the, the flea market dealers. And then there's a whole set of antique shops, permanent shops, that are tucked away down some alleyways and in some old abandoned mill buildings. So there's so much to see and do in this town of Lille-sur-la-Sourgue. I will echo that sentiment, by the way, because Lille-sur-la-Sourgue is, I think it's my favorite home base for uh, exploring that part of, of Provence. And it's good to hear that that has a destination sort of uh, flea market then. And it's really important to get the timing right. It's easy to be in the right place in the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And I've made that mistake several times. In fact, the first time that I went to Lille-sur-la-Sourgue, I'd heard about it as a very good market. I was eager to go, and I showed up, and it was not a Sunday. Mm. And I was left with the impression <laughs> of, well, what's all the fuss about? And I had to go back. I went back a second time. I went back on a Sunday, and I did indeed see the food markets mm. and the uh, brocante dealers. But I entirely missed these villages of antique shops that are tucked away in un- unexpected places. So it wasn't until the third time I got it right. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Marjorie R. Williams. She features her favorite open-air markets in the south of France in her guide called Markets of Provence. Olga's listening in from Vancouver, Washington, and joins us on the line now at 877-333-7425. Hi, Olga. 
Hi, Rick. Hi, Marjorie. I have a question about traditional markets between Arles and Marseille. Can you tell me, are there any special markets that just should not be missed in that area? Between Arles and Marseille, the Aix-en-Provence market is a wonderful market. The Aix-en-Provence market takes place a couple of different days during the week. I think the best days tend to be Thursdays and Saturdays. And you can see a range of items there, and it's a beautiful, beautiful town. And Aix-en-Provence, if you're unfamiliar with it, it has some local specialties such as the Calisson decks, which are little diamond-shaped cookies, which are very, very unique to Aix-en-Provence. Marjorie, could I suggest that Olga consider the fact that probably the most characteristic and fun little village markets are a little bit to the north and east of Arles rather than going south to Marseille, and she would just side-trip from Arles and do the markets where they're best and then hit the freeway and zip straight to Marseille. I think that's a great suggestion, Rick. And I agree with you. I think that the highest density of really interesting markets are in that region that Rick just described, which is sort of the Luberon area, Mm -hmm. the area that's more interior Provence rather than the coast. On the coast, it gets to be just a different culture and a different character to the markets. And also, instead of leaving Arles at 8 in the morning, leave Arles at 11 in the morning, and remember, they've got the beautiful morning market in Arles. As a matter of fact, Patrick from Indian Town, Florida, just emailed us. Patrick writes, My favorite market day in Provence was in Arles. Just seeing the produce was amazing. We didn't have a kitchen that day. We bought little souvenirs and uh, took lots of photos. It was a wonderful day in Provence. That's the Arles market. I completely agree with Patrick on that. And in fact, he makes a really good point, which is, You don't have to have a kitchen to enjoy Mm. going to the markets. There's plenty of food that you can eat right there or pick up and have a picnic and just the fun of being there. So don't cross it off your list even if you don't have a kitchen. And remember, think of the uh, North African influence as a plus there in the markets, especially in Arles. That's one place where I was really struck by the wonderful flavor and exotic sort of dimension brought in by all of the um, immigrants from uh, North Africa that work and live in that part of France. Mm -hmm. The Arles market, by the way, is the largest market in Provence. It just goes on and on and on. And, by the way, just from a general travel point of view, Arles, this is A-R-L-E-S, there's a lot of big towns that are famous for tourists, Avignon, Aix-en-Provence, Arles, Nîmes, and so on. For me, my personal choice would be Arles to make the big town Provence headquarters. And there's so much to see and do in Arles that is community feeling and, and also Within an hour drive of there, you've got a number of gorgeous little villages where you could uh, side trip and see those markets. I would just add to that that the cities are well known, such as Arles, Aix, and Avignon. But some of my very favorite markets are the small village markets. Mm-hmm. The character is a little different. It's more intimate. And the variety, while not, not as many choices, the quality is still very good. And there are just some absolutely idyllic spots in these little villages. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marjorie R. Williams. Her book is Markets of Provence. Marjorie, I love this idea of going to the villages to have that sort of time warp, wonderful, intimate village, fabric of community experience. When you go into a market, what time do you want to go? What are some tips about etiquette? You know, can you use uh, credit cards? What what are some basic nitty-gritty practical details? Yeah, some of these details make a big difference such as it's important to get there early to these markets. And it's for two reasons. One, the selection is going to be better, but even more practically, it's easier for parking. And parking at the popular markets and even in the smaller villages in the height of the season can become very difficult. 
So I strongly recommend getting there early. Go to the markets first as part of your itinerary mm -hmm. and then do sightseeing and go to the more permanent shops afterwards. And it is very useful to take cash. Some vendors take credit card, but not that many. So you're much better mm -hmm. off taking cash. Are the prices fixed? Is there any bargaining at all? I don't recommend that at the food markets. Sometimes as the day wears on, if the vendor's looking to just unload some food at the mm -hmm. end of the market time, the prices will come down. But generally, the prices are as they're written mm -hmm. on the little boards in the food markets. However, in the flea markets and antique markets, yes, there is a little bit of room for bargaining. My advice there is there's some room, but not a lot of room. So it's not like mm -hmm. shopping for a rug in Istanbul. <laughs> and you don't want to be overly aggressive. Keep in mind the culture there really puts a value on people who are very courteous and respectful of each other. So any negotiation needs to proceed that way. And there is that politeness that is so French and so endearing about France. And, of course, when you go into a shop, you'll want to say bonjour, au revoir, merci, and so on. Is that the same for stalls? Oh, yes, it, it absolutely is. Just a few of those verbal courtesies make a big difference. And just trying to speak, even if, if all you can say is bonjour and au revoir, just trying to do that mm. will open up all kinds of friendliness. Marjorie, you've talked about the traditional markets, and is there a difference between a traditional market and a farmer's market in the sense that in a farmer's market you're buying directly from the farmers and traditional market you'd have uh, merchants that get their goods from different sources? Yes, that's right. So at the farmer's markets, it's only the actual farmers or growers who are allowed to sell at those markets, mm. and they tend to be simpler markets. They don't have the flourishes with the displays as the traditional Provençal markets do. There's some really wonderful sellers. I'm thinking of mm. Farmer's Market, the woman who grows about 60 different kinds of basil, or a mushroom grower I met at a Farmer's Market who cultivates his mushrooms in an abandoned railway tunnel. Oh. And they're so delicious and exotic and bizarre. You really can't go far wrong at any of these markets with mm. any of the vendors. In your book, Marjorie, you talk about evening markets with animation. What do you mean by that? Well, that's a term that they tend to use when, in terms of referring to markets that have some sort of a special attraction. So, for example, I just happened upon this by chance in the little village of Lourmarin. I saw a crowd of people walking toward an agricultural loading dock, and it turns out that there was an evening market going on there. And one of the best chefs from the town was doing a cooking mm. demonstration at the market, and he was cooking duck in a cherry sauce, using the very, very local cherries. And uh, as he finished, the crowd erupted in roars of bravo, <laughs> and the chef passed around samples of what he was making. And these are primarily the locals who attend the evening markets. It's after work. It's a chance to just relax and be with their friends and enjoy some foods. And, you know, in Provence, going to the markets for the locals is not only about shopping and getting their provisions for the week ahead, but it really is about about seeing their friends and seeing their neighbors. Mm -hmm. They they use the expression "faire le marché," which means to make the market rather than to shop at the market. And I think that's an interesting distinction. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marjorie R. Williams. Her book is Markets of Provence. And uh, Marjorie, let's just finish with dessert. I mean, Provence has so many wonderful edible slices of its culture. Um, wrap up our conversation with just uh, an example of a traditional sweet that you would enjoy as part of your market experience. Mm. One sweet that you can find throughout Provence is nougat, the nougat candy. 
Initially, I didn't even want to try it. I thought I knew what nougat was, but tasting the nougat in Provence is an entirely different experience. It's made primarily from the local almonds and using the local honey with the lavender scent in it, and it's sort of chewy and light and utterly delicious. Another of my favorite desserts is some of the local goat cheese and dribbling just a little bit of honey on top, and that makes for a delicious dessert. Mm. Marjorie R. Williams, thank you so much, and uh, congratulations on a beautiful book, The Markets of Provence. Thank you. The hearty comfort foods of Belgium may have changed a bit over the years. We'll get a taste next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Kaixo, ni oski naiz eta donostion bizi naiz. Euskal Herritik nator mundura rik estibzekin. Hi, I'm Agustin from San Sebastian, coming from the Basque Country to the world with Rick Steves. Kaixo, ni oski naiz eta donostion bizi naiz. Euskal Herritik nator mundura rik estibzekin. I will never forget a waiter in Brussels bragging, in Belgium we eat as hearty as the Germans and as fine as the French. The Belgians are famous for their waffles and fries and beer, at least from this American perspective. But they're also respected for their high cuisine, their gastronomy. Right now we're joined by two friends and tour guides from Belgium, Nina Derricks and Ferdinando Mengi, to talk about Belgian taste treats. Ferdi and Nina, thanks for joining us. All right. Here we go. For the traveler, there's all sorts of trendy and and high cuisine options. But when you think back to your childhood, what was the go-to dish that your mom would serve you? Main dish every day at lunchtime is the main Lunch. meal because we're f- I'm from farmer stock. Soup. Often pigeon soup because Belgians particularly like pigeon racing and all the losers went into the soup. <laughs> no, really. In, yeah. in, the, in the farm community? You yeah, yeah. I have had a lot of loser soup, as we call it. <laughs> loser soup? Yeah, loser soup. <laughs> Losing pigeon yeah. would end up in the soup at lunch. Yeah. yeah, you wring their neck if they don't win a prize, and then you go in the soup. And there's a lot of goodness in soup. Mainly, that's why you had soup. Everything is in there. Mothers are happy. Kids have had soup. Mm. Yeah, well, there's happiness in soup. Followed by... Potatoes, everyday potatoes, everyday, but storage potatoes without any taste. Yeah, yeah they, no. you put them in the winter in your cellar, and then you have them. I don't know what you do to those things. You rehydrate them, and then you eat them <laughs> boiled with vegetables and bechamel sauce with a lot yeah. of nutmeg. So you call it storage potatoes? They're just yeah. sort of they store for the winter. They're just well, filler. They lose their taste. Yeah, boil them. Always boil salt. them. Always boil, Always boil them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or once a week fries, of course. Once a week fries. Okay. Oh, was, fries. was that like a luxury to have them fried or something? Or why, no, that why was tradition. tradition. And it was always on the same day. You remember that? Yes, what that's day? right. I think we had fries on Thursdays. <laughs> and all the rest of the week we had potatoes. Well, that potatoes. Not, yes. So if a, if a child today says, oh, I just had that yesterday, you would kind of go, when I was a kid. When I was a kid. <laughs> you had you potatoes every day and you were thankful. famous mm-hmm. painting of Van Gogh? Yeah, the potato, potato eaters. Yeah, the potato, potato eaters. eaters. That's my family. Yes. That is yeah. it. A That's bunch it. of humble farm people gathered around a table with one candle Absolutely. and a bowl of potatoes to share. And that's a true story. I mean, it's not that like you just invented, but it really, in mm-hmm. our days, that was the way. And before and that, that was it. Yeah. But you still have a love of potatoes. And I've been to places that cook up the Belgian fries. We call them French fries. What do you yeah, call them? But the French fries is because they cut. 
the way they cut the potatoes. Oh, that's, that's called, f- that's the French cut. That's a French cut. Nothing yeah. to do with fries. And let's Not get it French. right. We say Flemish fries. Flemish, yeah. It's a Belgian invention, though. Don't forget. <laughs> Don't <laughs> ever forget. <laughs> no. French fries are Flemish a fries. Vlaamse frieten. Vlaamse frieten. And yeah. that is literally Flemish fries. Vlaamse frieten. We say Vlaamse frieten met mayonnaise. Now, I have a friend who's a restaurateur in Bruges, and he took me into his kitchen, and he was like evangelical about his Flemse frieten, his French fries. He explained how they, I think they, they did twice through the... Fr- they uh, bake them first or cook them or put them in oil, certain temperature, and then they take them out and then they wait until they cool off and then they fry them again on a higher temperature so they become crisp and a little bit And as colorful. a Belgian, do you recognize the difference? Oh, yeah. And you have to have a good dollop of really fatty mayonnaise Ma- on, top on top of, of that double of fried fatty. fries. <laughs> And yeah. the best mayonnaise is when you're making yourself. Yes, the first recipe I ever learned at home is how to make mayonnaise. Yeah, yeah. and it's so easy Absolutely. to make and it's so much So what's the trick better. of good mayonnaise then? An egg, a little bit of oil, mustard. a little bit of mustard, that's yes. it. And that's it. And a bit yeah. of salt. A little bit of salt, oh. that's yeah. it. And so you, you make mayonnaise. You, you, in the you, Netherlands, you, they put sugar in the mayonnaise. Yeah, they make them sweet. We don't know if right. different probably. No. My so, mother would say, that's not Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Meaning that's not right. Is that right? So that's not Catholic. How do you say that in Flemish? That's not Catholic. That is not Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would say that's not kosher. That's not kosher. Yeah, that's, that's it. Like, that's like that's not Jewish. Yeah. That's not kosher. That's, that's not, not Catholic. That's not Catholic. Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if you're a traveler to this day, you can go to the good place and get a cone of fries. Mm-hmm. And the most, most Americans would go, mayonnaise, I want ketchup. I know, I want ketchup. But mayonnaise is the ones, that's the, the thing you put on there. And we used to get, be able to get them in newspaper. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember yeah. that. But that's now not hygienic. Yeah. Also, um, gray shrimp are popular in Belgium. Nina, can you explain to me what's the enthusiasm for the shrimp? They're very small. They're very tasty. They come from Arnossi. Uh, just yeah. off the coast of Norsi shrimp, yep. mm-hmm. yes. I remember when I was small, my mother every Wednesday goes to the market, buys a kilo of gray shrimp. The evening television is not on. You'd all sit around with my brothers and sisters, mother and father, maybe my grandparents, and we'd all be peeling the shrimp oh, yeah. and talking. And my dad would bring his beer, and it takes you a long time to peel these tiny little shrimp. They're so savory. In Bruges, they have shrimp, fresh-peeled shrimp like that, that you peel yourself, and then you have little shots of lemon gin. It works beautifully, and I do that, actually, with um, lemon gin and shrimp together. And beautiful. that's a beautiful experience, and you can find that in towns all over Belgium. Yes. So when I got married to Jamie, the Englishman, <laughs> and we were home, and I said, Jamie, we're going to have this kilo of shrimp together with my family, just to bond with the family. And I went to the local market, and the, the vendor said, you're not from here, are you? Which really hurt me. Okay. <laughs> I said, why? He says, shrimp that you can peel, we haven't sold that for decades, because you young housewives don't have time to peel shrimp anymore, so we don't. there's no demand for that anymore. Because so you, the peeling the gray shrimp yeah. was sort of a way to be convivial. Yes, that's right. It was tradition, and that's, the, that's when we talked. I've done that in Denmark, on small islands in little villages far from the mainstream where you have a, a table full of shrimp, and together with a good Danish beer, you peel the shrimp, you talk, and you drink the beer. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Because you're busy with something, and then you just talk. It loosens you up. Yeah. It yeah. loosens you up. Yeah. This yeah. is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking peeling shrimp in Belgium <laughs> here with Ferdi and Nina. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Nicole's coming in from Victoria in British Columbia. Hi, Nicole. Hi. I just wanted to say one of the best meals I had in Belgium was moule frites. <laughs> oh, moule. That's the French word for mussels. You know, I all my life, you live in Victoria, you know what it's like. I, I, the pilings on the dock were just filled with these uh, mussels, and I never dreamed of eating them. 
and then this the same exact creatures uh, on the <laughs> on the finest menus in Belgium. <laughs> Just delicious, and also with the mayo that uh, your guests were mentioning before. So let's talk about the mussels in the cuisine, uh, Ferdinando. How do you how do you enjoy the mussels in, when you're in Belgium? Oh, we enjoy them very much. I mean, there's a lot of restaurants where you can eat them, and they're all good to eat. But I prefer I'm a kind of a hobby cook. Mm-hmm. And I love to cook, and I cook it myself. And it's very easy to make a little bit of onions, a little bit of celery, and that's it. A little bit of white wine, you just steam it for 10 minutes, and mm-hmm. they're done. No so salt. that's the, um, the unadulterated, yeah. the, the pure kind of bel- uh, and, mussels. And there's different kinds of mussels. You know, there's different shapes or sizes, I would uh-huh. say. The small, the big, and the jumbo, like we call them. And the, What's I the tastiest? Get, I think the big ones. The big you, ones. You need, you need good big mussels uh-huh. in the shell. And, yeah. So typically you'd get a you'd get a kilo or something of mussels per person uh, per person. Yeah, that's, that's about two point two point two pounds, yeah. and a, it comes with a pile of good fries, yeah. uh, Flemish fries. Do you clean your own mussels when oh, you get I them clean from them the myself. market? I See? clean them. That's the most important thing. Clean your mussels because you need to mm-hmm. rinse them because otherwise, if mm-hmm. you have sand in them, do you rinse you, them in flowery water? No, I, I rinse them. No? S- the last rinse I would do in milk. This is All when right. they're still alive. Well, they're still, they're fresh. Yeah, because yeah. when we mm-hmm. did clams, you would put them in the bucket and they would rinse themselves. By, yeah, by, but we rinse them with water and the last right. one I'd rinse them with milk so they can okay. spit all, all the... Spit it all whatever. out. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. kind of purify them. Yeah, otherwise you eat and you, you, you eat sand and it doesn't come and over. And Nina, in a restaurant, how do you enjoy the mussels in Belgium? Uh, in white wine sauce. That's in white, white wine sauce. White wine sauce. Yeah. That's I usually how I go for um, a natural... Natural yeah. or white wine sauce. I don't want anything else with mussels. No, me neither. Because yeah. otherwise you lose the taste of the mussels. Less is the more. more you put in, less is better. You're yeah. right. Nicole, is this bringing back memories when you were in Belgium? Oh, yes. Makes me want to go back. Where, did you, <laughs> where do you remember eating mussels in Belgium? On the main square? Yes. <laughs> I love sitting on the main square there and having my mussels and looking out at the greatest square in Europe, La Grande Place. La Grande Place. Nina. Nicole, there's um, another type of mussels we have from Brussels. Mussels from Brussels is our name for the actor Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> well, you know Jean, you know Jean-Claude Van Damme, the actor. I mean, he plays in all those action movies. Okay, yeah. so he's muscles from Brussels. Martial yeah. arts. Yeah. Nicole, thanks for your call. Thank you. Enjoy your mussels in Brussels. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking mussels in Brussels and Belgian cuisine. We Americans always know about Brussels sprouts, and um, I realize that they've been cultivated in Belgium for a long time. But I, I was wondering, we call them Brussels sprouts. Do you call them Brussels sprouts? No, we call them spruite. We just call them sprouts. They're never, sprouts. Never. I think they originated in the Brussels yes, area. Yes, that's right. Likely, yeah. uh, I think yes. in San Catalina, Wavre. I yes, think. that's there right. A, there's a little place outside of Brussels. Okay. Yeah. And they call Brussels, but we call them spruite. Outside of Belgium? Yeah. Logically. Brussels Nobody calls sprouts. them Brussels sprouts. Nobody okay. Does. Is that part of your cuisine? Do people eat them very much? Well, as a kid, we never liked them. I don't know about we you. We were force-fed them. Force well, fed. Of course, you, same you, thing was, here. Some the, things are the same all over the world. Yes. You, you, there was no choice. If that was served, you eat it. Force-fed. You cannot yeah. leave the table. Of Worse than it. spinach, yeah? <laughs> yeah, worse than spinach. Worse than right. spinach. Andives. Isn't that a Belgian andive? Yes. Andives, they say, but we call them andive. We never say Belgian or I never called them andive. We called them witloof. Yeah. White ah, leaves. The white, white leaves. leaves. Yes. You mean the endive, the white one? Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Yeah. White oh, yeah. leaves. The French call them the chicon. The chicon, and we call them love. Yeah. When I was seven years old, we had the World's Fair here in Seattle, and that was Seattle's coming out party where we recognized there's a big world out here. And <laughs> my most vivid memory in 1962 at the Seattle's World Fair, wow. my grandfather took me to the most expensive dessert at the fair, and it was a Belgian waffle. Oh, wow. It was a waffle with strawberries and whipped cream. 
And that is an exciting part of travel to Belgium now, uh, especially if you have that kind of a memory of a Belgian waffle. Yeah, The, the waffle was called Brussels waffle because they still call them that way. Brussels waffle is a waffle with fruit and whipped cream, right? And sometimes you have a Brussels waffle supreme with a bowl of ice cream. A supreme comes supreme. with ice cream. Yeah, yeah. And Monique's calling in from uh, West Newbury in Massachusetts. Monique, have you had some waffle memories in Belgium? Yes, I have. The waffles there were so different from the ones that I was used to in the U.S. They were just crispy, and they had a, a sweetness to them that was so different. You didn't even need any toppings on them. No, nope, right. And mm-hmm. when I came home, I, I looked into trying to make them that way at home, and I found um, that the recipe, it seemed like it was made out of a yeast-risen dough rather than just a, a batter that we usually use at home. And they had little pearls of sugar in them, and I think that was what made all the difference. Is that what a Liège-style waffle yeah. is? Because I've noticed that it's a different texture. And when you're on the street and you're going for the, to the waffle sure. stand, you have options. Nina, what are the options? I think the Liège waffle, that is the pearl sugar waffle. It's thicker. It's, much, it's, it's chewier. Bit, chewier. chewier. Yeah. What they yes. do is that when they bake them, mm-hmm. and they put a little bit of sugar on top, so the sugar caramelizes. Oh, yes. oh, and that's, that's why it. you have the gouffre de Liège. The gouffre de Liège, yeah. the French way of saying yeah. Uh, yeah. the yeah. waffle the, of Liège. Liège, yeah. And Liège is a town... In Wallons. Well, so that's yeah. a French-speaking town. French yes. In Belgium. Yes. Yeah. Monique, what other taste treats do you remember from your time in Belgium? Another thing that I had there was water zooey. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But water it's, zooey, it's, it's yes. A, uh, it's a stew, and it traditionally, I think, has fish, but the version I had was chicken with potatoes and leeks. And mm. it was so delicious that I went back to the same restaurant the next night and had the same thing again. <laughs> Wow. And I tried making that at home as well, and that I had pretty good success making. Um, but I would love to try try the fish version sometime when I go back. Now that sounds like a traditional soup or stew that y- you might have. Waterzooi is from the city of Ghent. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Gentse Waterzooi. Don't you live in Ghent? No, Genk. Genk. Oh, yeah, there's two. It's about a hundred miles yeah. in difference. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gentse Waterzooi. It's a, it's a famous dish. If it's made good correctly, it's it's a dish. Ah. Delish to eat. It's a meal soup. It's a meal soup. It's a meal got chicken, soup. potatoes, leeks. Little, like a leeks, leeks. A little thicker hmm. uh, broth in there, but it's it's yummy. Is it vatrzoi? Vatrzoi. Actually, what it means is mess of water. A mess of water. Water oh. is water. Water yeah. is water. Zoi means a mess, making a mess out of water. I love this. Um, or zoyen from the verb zoyen, that means to boil, to boil, to boil water. Also. And so then you just bo- chuck things in. And you just in. chuck stuff yeah. in. So to, it's boil, a water mess. to boil a big mess. Sounds like a good peasant's, a peasant's <laughs> dish yeah. in, from Flanders. Absolutely. And then you can uh, have your water zoi, your mess of boiled water with stuff thrown in, and <laughs> take a little walk and drop by a, a, a waffle stand and, and have a nice Absolutely. dessert, a That's Belgian waffle. 5,000 calories right there. I think every <laughs> Family, every family has a waffle machine, don't they? Oh, I yeah, it's not something that you buy from stands all the Nina, time. Nina, you remember as a kid baking waffles? Yeah, always. I mean, every week yeah. we were baking, making yeah. waffles. Sundays. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was the treat. I bought a if, big box and If put you in kids there. are good, we're going to make some waffles. Yeah, I gave a waffle. All yeah. right. Monique, thanks for your call. Thank you. And happy eating next time you're in Belgium. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ferdinand Domengi and Nina Derricks, and we're talking Belgian taste treats. We've done a lot of eating here in the last few minutes. I just feel hungry. like it's, I'm getting hungry, too. <laughs> and uh, we're going to cap it off with uh, something that is exquisite and, and famous in Belgium, and it's the chocolates. And I was really struck by the passion for chocolate. There's little mom-and-pop chocolatiers. They pride themselves in not putting wax in the chocolate, I guess, that helps it survive the heat. So if it's too hot, they even close down. And people buy their chocolate thinking it needs to be fresh. Today's chocolate, believe it or not, 
What is it with the passion for chocolate in Belgium, Ferdi? Well, chocolate, I mean, me growing up as a kid in Nina as well, we know that chocolate was something that was, you know, we had chocolate if it was possible to get it. It was not always there because mm -hmm. chocolate was not that cheap to buy. But I remember those cheaper chocolate bars. But Remember the one with the cow on there? It was like a very flat, very thin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it cost like, you know, two cents for a bar. And that right. was, it was, of course, cheap. But so we grew up with chocolate, and, and chocolate, man, we have so many good chocolate cheese. Well, now you have a line of chocolate chocolate shops. You it's go down, even right in the main square in Brussels, you got Leonidas, you've got Godiva, Godiva yeah. and uh, three or four others. Oh, yeah. And people have their favorites. Nina, do you have a favorite uh, chocolate in Belgium? Oh, my God. I love, I love Lindt chocolate, but that's Swiss. That's Swiss. Cote d'Or. Cote d'Or is very good, Cote yeah. Cote is one of my favorite. Yeah, I like just very, very dark chocolate. Very dark. Yeah, yeah me too, dark very dark chocolate. And it's pretty good for you, I heard, a dark chocolate if you eat a little piece, not a, not a kilo of right. it. What's the difference? You, you encountered the word praline and truffle when you're looking at chocolates. Do you know the difference? A praline is made out of chocolate or it's a full chocolate or it's a, it's a filled one. Truffles is made actually of a mousse. It's softer. Okay. A truffle is way softer and it so has a shape of a truffle. Is you know that the right? Yeah. The mushrooms, it has right? cream in. Yeah, and, and it's got, it depends. It's okay. got praline cream and butter. Cream and, butter. And, and a praline is a filled one. A Maybe filled it's a stuffed chocolate. Stuffed stuff chocolate, chocolate. Yeah. yeah. Nina and Ferdi, it's so fun just talking about eating because that's part of travel for anybody. And when you're, if you have a guest in Belgium and you want to take them out to a favorite meal, let's just close with your, what you would order for your guests so they could really enjoy the, the cuisine of Belgium. Well, I would first, Ask him what they're up for. I mean, mm -hmm. not everybody likes mussels or not everybody likes right. a Belgian stew or something. And there's right. so many dishes. Don't forget, and we haven't mentioned it, that Belgian cuisine is in the top five of the world. Is that right? So there is a, we've been talking about low cuisine mostly, yeah, memories but, from our childhoods, but, but the high cuisine. Yeah, that's the high cuisine. But what's coming back now is the low cuisine, the ones we grew up with. There's more and more restaurants where they serve potatoes and vegetables with okay. bacon or sausage, which was a farmer's dish. Rabbit. Rabbit. And mm -hmm. that's coming back slowly and more and more people looking for those things. And Belgium is a perfect country. Can you find have. loser soup? <laughs> pigeon soup, yes. Pigeon soup, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. We love pigeon stews, absolutely. Right. They're back yeah. the losers. So yeah. it depends on the on the palate of the guests you have, you know. And we can we haven't even talked about it, but the beer is part of the cuisine. If you go to a fine wine shop in Paris, you've got French wine, but the beer will be Belgian. Europeans all think of Belgian We beers, cook with right? beer, yeah. And our stews, beer. absolutely. And more yes. and more people are drinking beer with their fancy dinners ah. or meals rather than wine. That's just kicked in, hasn't that's it? That's the latest fashion. That's just kicked in the last fashion. couple of years. Yes. And beer with beer. cheese. Yeah. Beer with cheese, combine right. that. And even yes. beer with chocolate. It's a really good combination. It depends what beer you're mm. drinking, but it's it's a good... Uh, so in the old days, beer was kind of considered food almost, and uh, now Yes, it was a, known as pain liquide, liquid, liquid bread. bread. Liquid bread. Yes. And today, it has become more refined, and it's uh, part of the whole gastronomy. But it's still classified as food, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so Remember therefore, you can drink it when you're 16, whereas booze, wait till you're 18. Was oh, that right? So yes. The, so you have to mm -hmm. be older to have a, a cocktail. Yes. But beer goes in a different category. Like we said yes. before, when our grandfather or our father said, well, one beer is worth two sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the same not, value. Uh, yes. You know, the same... Uh, same nutritional nutrition. Liquid, yeah, liquid bread. Liquid Sounds bread. like a fun yes. grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. we can drink a lot of bread. All right. Yeah. Hey, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been celebrating Belgian cuisine here with two wonderful guides, Ferdinando Mengi and Nina Derricks. Ferdi and Nina, thanks so much. And uh, 
I'm heading back to Belgium to uh, sample some of this hey. ed- edible culture. Call me if you dare. All right. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks for studio help this week from WGBH Radio Boston. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.